Welcome. Thank you for coming today. We are going to do our scripture reading first. We're in 1 Corinthians, if you haven't noticed, chapter 5, verses 1, I think it's through 5, I believe. That's where I'm going to go. 1 to 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from you. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It's God's Word. Amen. Father, would you just thank you so much for this time. We just recognize that you are God, that all of your Word, your Scriptures, is God-breathed by your Holy Spirit, that what Paul is writing to Corinth is what the Holy Spirit has to say to Corinth. It's what the Holy Spirit has to say to us. So I just pray that today that you would Help me to speak. You would help my mind not to be scattered and that it would be true. God, that you would take what is false and take it out of people's minds if I speak anything incorrectly um, and that you would cement things that are true in our hearts. May you convict us. May you also free us, I pray. I just ask that sermons like this, that cover subjects like this, would be freeing and that we would believe and go in the power of the good news of the gospel. And all that says about us, about our bodies, about our churches, about our lives, our marriages, our families. Would you bring freedom in the name of Jesus? Amen. So children, you are dismissed. Well, today comes with a bit of a trigger warning, and I don't just mean that as a joke, um, because the subject of sexual immorality and sex in general can be triggering for people for a lot of different reasons, and I just want to honestly say that up front. Um, So we're going to be diving into a theme, and a theme that comes to us because of what the scriptures say and because of where we're at here in this In this book, we're going to be talking a lot about sex and specifically sexual immorality. In fact, we're going to be doing a lot of that in the coming weeks because Paul is transitioning now to deal with this particular theme in his letter to the Corinthians in Corinth. The Corinthians were not prudes. You know that term? They were not prudes. To be Corinthian itself was a slang term. I think Plato even used it for being sexually promiscuous. A Corinthian girl was a phrase for a prostitute. 
There was a temple to Aphrodite in the city who was the Greek goddess of sexual love. And it may have housed as many as a thousand prostitutes, sex slaves for temple service. There's debate around that, but the point is, everywhere Corinth was known for this. So think Las Vegas when you think Corinth, or to be honest, just think America, just think our culture. Because it's clearly not just Vegas. In fact, it will probably be all over the Super Bowl today as well. So, in a city like this, that's known for that, sexual sin specifically is going to be a problem in the church community. But today we're going to step back from our text a little bit before we get to each of these specific verses. And we're just going to kind of look at that first word, sexual immorality. That first verse, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And so we're going to step back and look at what is a Christian view of sexual immorality. And I know that's kind of a negative way to say it. Really, you should probably do a title of a sermon or something like that as, hey, what is sex for? Or what's God's view? And I understand that. But since Paul is coming at it this way, we're going to come at it this way at first. And so I think the first thing we have to do to have a Christian view of sexual immorality is that we must unlearn a story. And I already talked about this in a few of the other sermons. We must unlearn a story. The first chapters, remember, have been all about orienting our lives and our beliefs around a different cultural narrative. The cultural narrative of Corinth was one of power, was one of prestige, was one of philosophies, again, with what's going on here, sexuality. And Paul is trying to get them to think in a completely different way. He's saying, you have adopted a completely different view. The Christian kingdom is different than the kingdoms of this world. And we really have to start there. We have to start at what is the story that we believe about God, about our bodies, and everything Else, Before we get into specifics about this, that, or the other thing in regards to sex, what is allowed, what isn't allowed, all of those kinds of questions that we can, we can ask. We live in a different world than the Corinthians lived. I've already explained some of that here. While they lived in an enchanted world, and by that I mean there was a temple to Aphrodite, Right now, we don't have temples to Aphrodite worshiping Greek gods currently in our city. But they did. But the secular West is a disenchanted world. With the triumph of science and reason over the supernatural, so we think, there's nothing supernatural. It's science, it's physics, it's reason. We live in a disenchanted world. And so the story that we believe is a liberal story. And by that, I don't just mean like the difference between left wing and right wing. But I mean the liberal story of democratization. Everybody is, is free. Everybody is equal. We should all be seeking personal freedom. And we have a world of therapy, a therapeutic vision and version of the self. And so the authority of God has faded, especially in the West Any limits that might be set by God are unimportant. 
They don't carry much weight. The authority of biology itself is being questioned. We've kind of gotten rid of God, so now we're even, we can get rid of our bodies. What matters is what's in. The feelings within are the determinative factor of life and the self. And so the body itself is becoming negotiable. All that matters is me and my autonomy. There's another rhyme. All that matters is me and my autonomy. Autonomy, government. I am self-ruled. And one book that I've been reading lately called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. It's not written by a Christian, written by a feminist by the name of Louise Perry. I think she writes for a British political magazine and a journalist, also a feminist, but a different kind. And she critiques the sexual revolution. But this is some of the story that filters down from what I have just said about sex. The idea that sex is nothing more than a leisure activity, invested with meaning only if the participants choose to give it meaning. Proponents of this idea argue that sex has no intrinsic specialness, that it is not innately different from any other kind of social interaction, and that it can therefore be commodified without any trouble. The sociologist Max Weber described the disenchantment of the natural world that resulted from the Enlightenment as the ascendance of rationality stripped away the sense of magic that this enchanted garden had once held for pre-modern people. In much the same way, sex has been disenchanted. In the post-1960s West, leaving us with a society that believes that sex means nothing. Sexual disenchantment is a natural consequence of the liberal privileging of freedom over all other values. But when we attempt to disenchant sex and so pretend that this particular act is neither uniquely wonderful nor uniquely violating, then there is another kind of cost. The cost falls disproportionately on women. And she goes on to argue in her book. But we must understand that we live in that kind of a world with that kind of a story about God, about us, about our bodies, and about sex itself. And so we need to repent. And this goes for all of us. All of us have been shaped in some way by that story, by that way of thinking about the world. We can't ingest music and media and marketing and everything else that we see, that story is going to be, is going to affect us in some very dramatic ways. Could be mild, could be medium, could be extreme, but we're all affected. And so we need to repent and reorient ourselves around a different story, just like they did in Corinth. Theirs was different, oftentimes connected to actual physical idolatry and worship in a temple or prostitution and things like that as it related to idolatry and just kind of a blatant freedom in sex as well. But ours also must be repented of. And so, another S, and I'm going to do a lot of S's. I've been on the S's lately. So if the first one is, to have a Christian view of sexual immorality, you must unlearn a story, namely the one we just talked about. To have a Christian view of sexual immorality, you must be discipled by the story of the scriptures. And sex is all over the Bible. 
You cannot read Genesis without dealing with it. Like it or not, it is there. It is all over the place. But before we get to that specifically, again, we have to start with God because that's where the Bible starts. It assumes God. It assumes a divine authority. The very first words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We believe that. As Christians, we confess that. God is the authority. He made everything. And then later on, he tells us who we are. And so again, is this the story that you believe? This is us later on in Genesis. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So again, there's a kind of autonomy here. God is saying, hey, you get dominion. You're a vice regent. You are kind of a governing authority on earth. You're created in my image and my likeness to rule. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So the first authority is God. And God has endowed us with a kind of authority as his image bearers on earth. We have been created by God. We don't believe that as a culture. We still kind of do because human rights itself is actually based on a Judeo-Christian idea. How do you have human rights if it's just a strictly absolute evolutionary perspective? You can't because it doesn't really exist. What right is it? But, God, but, but the story that we believe is that God is our authority and that God created us and that God created our bodies, that we are created male and female in the image of God. And what a high, beautiful perspective about what a human being is. There's a sense in which a human being is royalty. There's a sense in which that is true. That's what we believe. And God blessed them and God said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God's blessing them. He's blessing men and women created in His image. He's saying, One of the things you're going to do is be fruitful and multiply. How does that happen? The S word. That's how it happens. And so, that's where our view is going to start. God makes people, men and women, in His image. Creation is good. He goes on. It is good. It is good. It is good. Everything God makes is good. These bodies are not bad. It's not evil. God's view of sex itself is not bad. It is good. But it gets corrupted. Sexual complementarity, male and female, it's a gift it's part of the relationship of the image of God. Somehow it reflects Him and His nature. But we start having problems quickly in the garden. Sin enters the world. Sin enters the world. And it starts to happen fast, specifically in the area of sex. We start having problems. Genesis 4. If you look at Genesis 4 in verse 19, you have a guy by the name of Lamech. 4.19. And Lamech, he's actually in Cain's line. What happened with Cain? Cain killed his brother. Another problem with sin, violence, murder. Lamech took two wives. There we go. Polygamy, right from the beginning. 
There's a lot of questions around polygamy. We're not going to get all into that about why does the Bible say this, that, or the other thing about it. But where it starts, the dude who started the polygamous thing that's kind of casually mentioned as two wives is a murderer. Elimech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada and the name of the other Zillah. If you go down, verse 23, Lamech said to his two wives, kind of this bragging song, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. So you have this powerful, toxically masculine dude killing people and taking two wives. There's one problem. Genesis 9, Noah. What happens with Noah? Lots of things. What happens after the flood? Noah, Ham, and the tent. And the weird thing that happens in the tent. Uncovers his father's nakedness, invites his brothers in. We're we're not even sure. There's all kinds of scholarly debate on different things that happened and articles written. What exactly happened in the tent when he found his father? Point is, some weird sexual sin, lust, something was going on in the uncovering of nakedness, which that phrase throughout the Old Testament is usually used in a negative way that there was some kind of a sin happened. Noah and the son of Noah. What was Ham's name? If you look at Genesis 9, 20 to 25, you can read that. We're not going to read the whole thing. But that's you can read about what exactly took place there. In um, verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan. Okay, another key word, Canaan. Ham is the dad of Canaan. Canaan comes from the Canaanites. Israel and the Canaanites did not get along well. So the Canaanites were worshippers of false gods. They were part of the, one, the land of Canaan, the promised land, the exodus. When, they're delivered, when the people of Israel are delivered from Egypt, they're to go into their redemption of the promised land of milk and honey. They got to get rid of the Canaanites because of all of the pagan practices. So where does that take us to? That takes us to Leviticus, everybody's favorite book. Someday we should actually preach on Leviticus. It'd be kind of fun. But Leviticus takes us to this issue of the Canaanites, of pagan false worship and the kinds of practices that they practiced, oftentimes sexual practices. And you have what's called the holiness code in the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. You have a holiness code in Leviticus 18 and 19 and 20. And it talks about several kinds of sexual Sins, and I'm going to read some of these. You may wonder, well, why? Well, it's in the Bible, and sometimes we should hear it. Leviticus 18. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. Again, that's where it always starts. I am God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you live. You shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan. There's that word. To which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules. Keep my statutes, walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Again, just covered with God saying, I am God. You are creator. You are my people. Walk in my ways and not their ways. And then he gives a big list. We're going to read some of these. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. There's the word. Mentioned also, I believe, with Noah. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. 
It's funny how he just interjects that over and over again as if they're not really going to believe it. Well, maybe I'd want to do that. One sinner is thinking, I am the Lord. Continually, that reminder, that refrain over and over and over again. Verse 7, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It's your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter, of your daughter's daughter, for their nakedness is your own nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife, wife's daughter, brought up in your father's family, since she is your sister. So just kind of going through in several different aspects of of, of family and incest. Verse 17, you shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter, and you shall not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are relatives. It is depravity. Verse 20, and you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and so make yourself unclean with her. What's that? Adultery. We have incest. We have adultery. Prohibited by God. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Human sacrifice. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Homosexuality. You shall not lie with an animal and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion, bestiality. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all the nations I'm driving out before you have become unclean. In other words, the Canaanites, these nations are all doing this. And the land become unclean so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. Meaning, not just you Israelites, everybody comes among you and joins the people of God. They are not to engage in these kinds of behaviors. Verse 27, For the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations so that the land became unclean, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. Anyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you. So we see this picture of the land vomiting out because of these specific practices. The holiness code, Leviticus 18. And that actually takes us, connects with our passage today. Why does Paul talk in this way? Why does he say, there's sexuality among you of a different kind, and here's what it is. And he goes on to describe an incestuous situation. That right away would have triggered, especially for the Jewish thinker, Leviticus 18 and the holiness code. Because of the the incestuous relationship and also because of the idea later that we read about how, wait, he's handing this man over to Satan? It's like remove this person from the community. What happened in Leviticus 18? What does the land do? It, It vomits out the nations that disobey. And so the, the, the Jewish person the reader of the Torah would have thought that way. One scholar kind of said, Leviticus 18 is what double-clicking on Pornea in 1 Corinthians 5 would be. 
So the word for sexual immorality is porneia. That's the Greek word. It's a broad term. It's extremely broad. It can narrowly have to do with prostitution, but broadly it can, it can encompass all kinds of ranges of sexual prohibitions. One commentator, one of the uh, ones that's noted for his commentary on 1 Corinthians. The word porneia, sexual immorality, in the Greek world simply meant prostitution. So again, there's the narrow sense. In the sense of going to the prostitute and paying for sexual pleasure. The Greeks, the culture there, was ambivalent on that matter. No biggie. No big deal. Depending on whether one went openly to the brothels, brothels or was more discreet and went with a paramour which is a secret, improper sexual relationship. But the word had been picked up in Hellenistic Judaism. I know fancy terms here. Greek-speaking Jews, Jews that were under the influence of Hellenism, Greek culture, that that word was used always pejoratively, meaning it's a negative word, to cover all extramarital sexual sins and aberrations, including homosexuality. It could also refer to any of these sins specifically as it does here. So, when, when the New Testament is speaking of sexual immorality, it's referring to the whole list, all of it. Adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, incest, go down the whole list. That's the way the word was used. C.S. Lewis, in Mere Christianity, put it like this, speaking of chastity, because we don't like to hear that. Everything I just said we don't want to hear in our culture. You can get picketed for saying such things. This is what C.S. Lewis said. Chastity is the most unpopular of Christian virtues. Well, it's not very popular. Chastity is the most unpopular of Christian virtues. There's no getting away from it. The Christian rule is either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. Now, this is so difficult and so contrary to our instincts that obviously either Christianity is wrong or our sexual instinct as it now is, has gone wrong. One or the other. Of course, being a Christian, I think it's the instinct which has gone wrong. So the sexual relationship was designed by God to be, to be between a man and a woman. We see that from the foundational verses in Genesis that we just read. You can see it in the holiness code. We're not going to get... And by the way, I'm not going to answer all the questions. There's going to be a bunch of questions that are popping into people's mind. I'm not going to be able to answer them um, all today. So it's supposed to be kind of a microcosm piece of this. Okay. But the, the God ordained a man and a woman, and that's where sexual relationships should happen in the context of marriage and that alone. Every other kind of expression of that is prohibited is out of bounds according to the scriptural story. Not the story of our culture. Not the story of the culture that Paul was in at that time. So, to have a Christian view of sexual morality, you must unlearn a story. You must be discipled by the story of scripture. And discipled means it's got to be in you. If you're not reading this book, and this does not have authority in your life, you will be formed by the culture. It's all there is to it. You're already going to be formed by the culture. You'll have to be regularly discipled by the way in which Scripture speaks to believe that story. Because everything within you and within the culture is going to be, that story is ridiculous. Again, 1 Corinthians, this is foolishness. This makes no sense. 
To have a Christian view of sexual immorality, you must recognize you are a sexual sinner and sufferer. You must recognize you, all of us, are sexual sufferers and sexual sinners. All of us are sufferers. So because of the fall, we have all been affected by the trauma of sexual sin. Every single person in here who has lived any amount of time will be affected by the trauma of sexual sin. And we see the trauma in Genesis. You see Genesis 19. You see Sodom and Gomorrah. You see the homosexual rape that was attempting to take place there. You see Lot saying, no, hey, daughters, here you go. Talk about trauma. What about those daughters? What happened later with the daughters? It's another story. I don't have time for that. Genesis 34. You have the rape of Dinah, the daughter of Jacob by Shechem. Shechem seizes Dinah and then all the brothers end up going and like wiping out the town. Sexual violence in Genesis and in the Old Testament. In a fallen world, sexual violence from the most worst to... There's, there's a spectrum here like anything occurs. That's what happens when human beings go wrong and sin. There is suffering. Dan Allender, a Christian trauma therapist, defines sexual abuse as this. Sexual abuse is any contact or interaction... Any contact or interaction, visual, verbal, or psychological between a child, adolescent, and an adult when the child, adolescent, is being used for the sexual stimulation of the perpetrator or any other person. That is sexual abuse. That's a definition. He even goes on in another podcast to talk about how the introduction to pornography itself is a form of abuse. When somebody is introduced, if you have been introduced to pornography at some time in your life, that itself is a form of sexual abuse. If you have received anything like that, you have experienced sexual suffering. And so, in a sense, we need to pause to realize that, that this subject itself isn't just about, oh, maybe something that you've done that's sexual sin, but it can also be about the sin that has been done to you. And what I would say is, if anything like that has happened, talk to somebody that you trust about it. And if it's going on now or it happened in the past, or you thought, nope, I wasn't in that category, or whatever, you may need to talk to somebody that you trust and who loves you, because that can be life-shaping. You can be affected for a very long time due to sexual suffering. And God is a compassionate and gracious God. We can also be affected by sexual suffering by the fact that people that we love might commit sexual immorality. And now I'm not talking about the context of abuse. I'm talking about adultery. We see it rampant in our culture. The loss of um, adultery. I just talked to somebody recently and just seeing the effects of it and how negative it is. There are people in this room who have dealt with this particular issue. God loves you. All of us can be affected by sexual suffering. 
All of us are also sinners. We're sinners. We're not just maybe the ones who have been sinned against, but we're the perpetrators. Maybe not always in those kinds of ways, maybe, but in other ways. So this week with we were putting our chimney in a dump truck. There was a bunch of brick, pile of brick. It was a lot of brick. It was not enjoyable. Just ask Jim and Kathy Bragg. <laughs> and my, um, my friend said something like, hey, there's probably an illustration here somewhere. And I was trying to think of, huh, that's a good point. There probably is an illustration here. So in a way, we are dumped into this world of fall with a bunch of brick. And oftentimes sexual suffering kind of brick. Okay? While we were doing this, I was taking it back and forth in loads to the dump truck. And they were getting their hammer drills out and adding more brick to the pile. And so sometimes in our lives, we are getting more brick added to our piles by things that we did not ask for. And sometimes we're trying to get rid of the brick in our pile and we're also the ones chucking brick back in the pile. And it keeps stacking up and shaping us. And so you have to recognize that we also are sexual sinners. And how do we know that? You could say, well, I'm not committing adultery, not out sleeping with another woman, or um, I'm not pursuing a homosexual lifestyle or go down all of those prohibitions in Leviticus 18. But Jesus raises the standard. To have a Christian view of sexual immorality, you must have the Jesus standard. What's his standard? In Matthew 5, he talks about how he came to fulfill the law. He even talks about how I didn't come to relax this law. I came to intensify it. I embrace what the law has said, which means all of us are sinners. And he goes on, he talks about lust. What does he say about lust? He equates it with adultery. Matthew 5. We all know it, but we're going to read it. Matthew 5, 27-30. You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. So Jesus says, this is a heart issue. This isn't just what you're doing with your bodies. This is something deep in the heart, even lustful intent. I'm raising the standard high. It isn't just Levitical code. We get hung up on, oh boy, I wish God affirmed parts of the Levitical code, which he doesn't. Um, the holiness code, I wish he would kind of reverse his ideas on some of that. But he raised it even higher. Inside the heart, you've committed adultery. If you engage in lustful Intent. So everybody is a sexual sinner. And our culture is infatuated with, so porneia, what's the word porneia? Porn. We live in a porn-saturated culture. 
In 2006, estimated revenues for sex-related entertainment businesses were just under $13 billion in the U.S. 28,258 users are watching pornography every second. $3,075.64 is spent on porn every second on the Internet. One in five youth pastors and one in seven senior pastors use porn on a regular basis and currently struggling. That's more than 50,000 U.S. church leaders. 64% of Christian men and 15% of Christian women say they watch porn at least once a month. 90% of teens and 96% of young adults are either encouraging, accepting, or neutral when they talk about porn with their friends. No biggie. It's just sexual transaction. It's just me and the internet. Or whatever, it's not a big deal. Just normal. Just normal. Just 55% of adults, 25 and older, believe porn is wrong. Teens and young adults, 13 to 24, believe not recycling is worse than viewing pornography. We live in a porn-saturated culture, and it's not just Christians saying that. There's all kinds of research on this. TED Talks, books about it, all kinds of other things. And all of us are affected by that. And our kids are either have not yet been affected about by it or probably will be. It's normal. <clears throat> and God says that lustfulness is sin. But here's what's interesting. There's another S, and I'll do this quickly. I'm going to try to move a little faster. Um, to have a Christian view of sexual morality, you must also recognize that sex is sometimes superficial. And here's what I mean by that. Jesus puts lust and anger together when he's talking about the, the Sermon on the Mount. I was reading one Christian therapist and they were talking about the relationship between sex and anger and how often that can happen in relationships. Or sometimes sex is the superficial problem. It's kind of like there's a sin under the sin. And sometimes the sin can be anger. You can use anger in a marriage relationship against this particular issue of sex. You can use it as revenge. Well, I'm not getting what I want, so I'm going to go look at porn. Or I'm not getting what I want, or I'm upset at you, so I'm going to treat you a certain way. Or, life sucks. Life is hard. Jay Stringer one Christian therapist said this, Pornography says to men, give me all your shame, humiliation, and futility, which all men and all people can feel, and I will give you a world where it all goes away. And so sometimes we have to see that sometimes sexual sin can be because of deeper roots that are also there. And God wants to get into our hearts and cleanse those. To have a Christian view of sexual morality, you must be watchful of self-righteousness. There's another S. Romans 2. I'm not going to do all that. What happens in Romans 1? Big long list of idolatries. It talks about homosexuality. talks about other issues. Romans 2, he turns and basically says, Hey, you kind of look down in judgment on all them, but you too are under judgment. Because sometimes you're practicing the same things. Sometimes we'll see that. Sometimes we'll see that in church leaders or church culture, how, wow, that guy preached a bunch against it and then he was doing what on the side? Or sometimes we can be most judgment against the things that we ourselves are dealing with 
Or we try to rank them. Oh, well, I did that, but I don't have that problem. I don't have that issue. Looking down our nose. Self-righteousness. C.S. Lewis, I want to make it clear as I possibly can that the center of Christian morality is not here. If anyone thinks that Christians regard unchastity as the supreme vice, he's quite wrong. The sins of the flesh are bad, but they're the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual, the pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport and backbiting the pleasures of power, of hatred. That's why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But of course, it's better to be neither. And what do we see with the way Jesus handled sexual immorality and sexual sin? Sometimes he treated the prostitutes in a completely different way than he treated the Pharisees. We see that all over, the way Jesus handles it. Self-righteousness can be a major problem. And so the Christian right can preach against this or that sexual sin all the time, and in some ways we should, but we must be very, very careful if you fall in that category. We can do all of our Facebook posts and all of this or that about just the sexual degradation of the society, which is true, but we got to be careful because there can kind of become this air of self-righteous judgment and not recognizing all of us are sexual sinners, all of us are sexual sufferers, and all of us need the good news of Jesus Christ. One other thing I would want to say, to have a Christian view of sexual immorality, you must put darkness in the sunlight. You must put darkness in the sunlight. Sexual trauma, you got to get in the sunlight. You need to talk to a trusted person. Sexual sin, you got to get in the sunlight. James 5.16, if you confess your sins one to another, you will be healed. There's something about sometimes talking to another person not just doing that, well, look to porn again today. Father, forgive me, I've sinned. Next day, well, look to porn again today. Father, forgive me, sin. Next day, look up. You get the idea. And it doesn't have to just be that particular example. But sometimes we need to look at another human being in the face and confess. And healing can happen. We were made for that, for community. To have a Christian view of sexual morality, you must not see celibacy or singleness as second class. Jesus was the most fulfilled person who ever walked the earth and Jesus was single. He did not have a sexual relationship. Paul was single. He might have been married before, but he was single too. And so singleness, sometimes even in churches with all the families and everybody's married and sermons on marriage and family all the time or whatever, it can probably be exhausting sometimes. It's not second class. At all. Your Savior was single. It also tells us that celibacy can be costly. Some people don't want to be single. Some people don't want to be single. But there can be a costly obedience. I'm not going to read it because I don't have enough time. But one person was kind of paralleling some of the idea of, well, hey, well, wait a second. I was... I have homosexual desire and I need to go fulfill homosexual desire. Well, one thing Paul says very clearly, it's prohibit. Sexual morality falls under the whole banner of all of the holiness code as a sin. And even if 
Even if that's how a person was born to pursue that, that does not mean, therefore, that it is okay. The Christian doctrine of original sin itself assumes all of us are sinners. We're not born into this world innocent. Our desire is going, oh, I just want to pursue God. No, we want to pursue all kinds of other things. But it goes even for the person who is desiring other sex attraction. And they can't because they're not getting married. They've been trying to get married for years or decades. What does God call them to? Celibacy. Because it's only supposed to happen in the context of marriage. And then we could get into just the beauty of marriage, and that's probably what I should have done, but we're not going to have time to do that. Um, so that's another, that's, that's another piece. This most important piece. To have a Christian view of sexual morality, you must trust the Savior. And so, the good news of Christianity is the Gospel. That's what it means. The Gospel is good news. It is not good advice. It's not just me or anybody else getting on a stage and saying, don't do this. Don't do that. The Bible says that. The Bible gives us law. Hey, this is prohibited. Don't do this. Hey, if you have sexual lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. But the good news is that we're not just here to learn principles and advice. The law can kill, but the gospel gives freedom. We need an announcement We need liberation. And that's what the good news does. The good news of Jesus Christ is to liberate us from our sin. To forgive us of our sin. To liberate us from sexual suffering that we did not cause. To give us freedom. To forgive us from sexual sin that we did do. That we rejected God's law. And to to forgive us from that. And that the good news of the gospel, it's not self-fulfillment, it's not self-effort, it's not working really hard to be a good Christian. The good news of the gospel is that God in the person of Jesus Christ has acted on our behalf, has given us what we cannot do by ourselves and that is save us. That he came down in a body, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth to forgive us of our sins, to die as a victim on the tree to rise again in newness of life for forgiveness. 1 Corinthians 6.11 This is just a little bit later in Paul's letter. He kind of gives this whole other list again. Talking about sexual immorality and adulterers and men who practice homosexuality and how all those kinds of people are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. That's what the Bible says. If you're involved in all those things, you're not in the kingdom. That's bad news. Because all of us in some way have been involved in some of those things. And then he says, Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The good news is that God provides the washing. He provides the cleansing. God removes the shame. The good news is that your sanctification comes from Him. Your justification comes from Him. It doesn't come from, I've been away from porn for ten years. I haven't committed adultery in X amount of time or whatever it is. Your your justification comes from in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to be free? You want to experience liberation? You trust Jesus. He's King. He's the one with authority. 
He is the Savior. All forgiveness, all freedom is found in Jesus. He can make you right with God. He's saying, hey, Corinthians, that's how you were. But now, if you're in Jesus Christ, you're washed. You're sanctified. You're justified. And the Holy Spirit can cleanse you and make you whole. And so, the Christian view of sexual immorality is not just certain kinds of sex are immoral. It's that God came to save and to set free the sexually immoral and the sexual sufferers. That's what He came to do. And He did it, again, in bodily form. He came as a man to die for His body to be broken. His blood to be shed. To forgive you. The pronouncement, the announcement, it cannot be earned. I have done it. We believe it. We trust it. We come to the table again. I don't always believe that, God. I need some help. This is here to remind us of where the freedom is found. That He has accomplished what we cannot accomplish. And what may grip us. He has done it in Jesus Christ. Let's rejoice. Let's sing. Let's come to the table and do that. Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my life, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are still, when striving Comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones He came to save. To whom that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on Him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. There in the ground His body lay. Light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, 
I am His, and He is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death, this is the power of Christ in me, from life's first cry to final breath. Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever from his hand till he returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ I'll stand So communion is also meant to be a time of reflection and examination. Also covered a lot today. But I just want you to pause just for a second and just kind of examine yourself. I just want to remind you that if there's anybody you need to talk to in regards to either sexual suffering or sexual sin, talk to them. Communion is a time to reflect and examine yourself. And also, communion is a celebration that there's good news. If that is you, you probably don't feel like there's good news. But there's good news. Jesus came as a victim, in a sense, to die on a cross. And he's a victor. He rose again. And so we believe that, we confess that, we ingest that even now as the story of our lives. So let's do this. I receive from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. Stand as we close. beginning one with God the Lord most high your head and glory and creation now we feel the new 